Okay, welcome. Thank you very much for coming. My name is John Chowcraft. I'm an associate professor in the government department. I specialise in the Middle East. It's a pleasure to welcome you. And it's, it's great that we've got uh, Dr. Charles Anderson here today to present and introduce his paper, which you will all have read, entitled uh, Will the Real Palestinian Peasantry Please Sit Down? Uh, the Crisis of the Countryside and Towards a New History of British Rule in Palestine. So uh, it's really great to have him here. This is uh, partly the fruit of uh, a, a behemoth of an 1,000 page PhD that uh, Charles recently completed uh, in the Department of History and uh, Islamic and Middle Eastern Studies at NYU. Uh, and, uh, and it's especially good for our series, I think, because this, of course, is part of the seminar series in social movements and popular mobilization in the Middle East. And uh, we've been a bit dominated so far by the Arab uprisings and by recent concerns. We need this kind of historic depth and the sort of history from below uh, angle. And of course, this paper inevitably broaches debates about you know, how about historical sociology, historical sociological sorts of approaches, the role of class, and so on and so forth. But uh, Charles Anderson's here. He's now a postdoc in the Center uh, for um, the study of it's contemporary. Uh, contemporary Arab studies in Georgetown. And uh, he's converting this PhD into a book. And... Um, I'll turn the floor over to him without any further ado. The format is that we have, uh, he's going to simply introduce his paper for 10 to 15 minutes, and then I'm going to speak as discussant for about 10 minutes, no longer, and then the floor will be open for discussion and questions for you know the remainder of the time until just before 6.30. So let's welcome Charles in the traditional way. <coughs> Thank you, everybody. Uh, I, of course, uh, would like to thank John, of course, for the invitation to speak as part of the social movements and political mobilization in the Middle East and North Africa series. I'm happy to be with you today. I'd also like to thank Sara Masri uh, for technical and other support. Uh, and I'd also like to thank all of you for the patience that you've extended me already in reading uh, what I think is probably a rather lengthy uh, paper for this type of workshop setting. Um, okay, so the context of the paper, you've already heard a little bit about. This comes out of my dissertation, which I finished just last year. Uh, this is the second version of me trying to work through a segment of chapters within the dissertation on the peasantry, and particularly trying to crystallize a set of arguments about the transformation of the Palestinian peasantry uh, under the British mandate uh, before 1936. Um, to make the point, if it wasn't made clearly enough in the paper, uh, what I'm also trying to do here is to uh, essentially work backwards for an explanation of where the revolt in 1936 comes from. Uh, and what you have before you is part of an answer, and I emphasize that it's only part of an answer. There's a whole long segment on youth also, this nebulous category youth, equally nebulous in the past as it is now, uh, also in the dissertation. Uh, so this isn't by way of a complete explanation here, but it's trying to get at the kind of obscured history of the Palestinian peasantry, which, in my opinion, 
has been remarkably absent from the literature, uh, whether you're reading in sociology or history or other disciplines. So, <clears throat> as I mentioned a second ago, uh, one of the key problematics in this paper is the trans what I'm calling the transformation of the peasantry, namely their gradual dispossession which didn't just occur in a swoop in 1948, uh, which I presume most of us in this room or all of us in this room uh, know a good deal about already. But uh, as I'm arguing in my dissertation and uh, future book project and in the paper you have in front of you, was significantly advanced uh, quite early on in British rule, uh, in the period uh, of British rule. Uh, <clears throat> so, Perhaps one or two of the things that I can throw out in regard to thinking about the transformation of the peasantry that we can talk about today, and I'd be curious to hear if people have feedback, is I've been framing this transformation as one of a gradual proletarianization of the peasantry. Uh, again, for reasons of space, part of this argument is not fully in the paper in front of you, um, and I'll speak more about it in just a second, but it occurs to me, uh, a friend of mine has pushed on uh, this argument recently that perhaps proletarianization is not quite the framing uh, that I want to be using here, um, given that the key dynamic is the severing of the peasantry uh, from ownership of the land uh, and the emergence of a constellation of survival-based practices that can include sharecropping, uh, migrant labor, uh, migration to urban slums and any assortment uh, thereof uh, by the early 1930s uh, in the critical period that's the lead up before the revolt in 36. Okay, so that's one question perhaps to think about here. <clears throat> um, just by way of footnote, I'll add that in the dissertation, uh, this axis of proletarianization is developed along lines of uh, examining the structural unemployment in Palestinian society. This is a difficult question to get at, um, not least because of the uh, lack of proper statistical indices by which uh, to actually gauge it, but nevertheless there are quite a number of different reports about Palestinian unemployment, and what I can tell you about that is that where it's uh, commonly been sort of presumed that um, that the seasonal citrus uh, 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 harvest would absorb kind of surplus labor needs for several months of every year. By the early 1930s, the, the estimations of unemployment that we can find in uh, the colonial uh, office records show very little fluctuation, whether it's citrus season or not. Uh, which points to a kind of core unemployment issue uh, as far as I'm arguing it and as far as I can understand from the information that I have. Um, and this is also coincident with the period in which the Yishuv demographically explodes as the Nazis rise to power, uh, beginning with Hitler's ascent to the chancellorship in January 1933, of course, after which immigration explodes inside Palestine. Okay, so... <clears throat> to switch tacks for a second, uh, part of what I'm also trying to develop in this paper, which I probably didn't say clearly enough, uh, is something about the blindness of empire and of the colonial administration and the colonial state in Palestine. Um, <clears throat> what do I mean by the blindness of empire? Well, there's uh, <clears throat> basically, I think I do make this point in the paper, that until 1929, the ministers of 
the Palestine mandate, were reluctant to concede that their policies were increasing local landlessness. In 1929, there uh, is a major uprising, of course, that you read about, and there's a spate of inquiries that follow that seem to then document, uh, in hindsight, uh, the emergence of what's often referred to as a landless class, with all of the problematic connotations that that has for colonial stability uh, and informal rule. But this blindness extends even past 1929, I would say, in that the, the types of solutions that are proffered by the uh, mandatory administration uh, tended to fixate on things like um, uh, tenants' rights, namely the rights of sharecroppers. But uh, this is a problem, not because there was a lack of sharecropping, which uh, grew considerably in the 1930s from what we know about it, but based on the fact that, in, according to the 1931 census, sharecroppers were still a considerable minority in the countryside as compared to uh, 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 owner cultivators, right? Even if the size of the owner cultivators plot is shrinking, their uh, demographic weight was considerably larger. And the British uh, were ill-disposed to consider uh, means of keeping owner cultivators, not sharecroppers, uh, on their land. Uh, I would just throw out a suggestion by way of trying to explain this uh, problem, which I was just thinking about the other day, uh, in that I, I think the concern with share tenants and sharecropping grows out of a kind of feudal imaginary that the colonial state has of Palestinian society. And this kind of constant projection of the idea that uh, large landholders are the ones who are creating the landless problem by selling their properties and alienating uh, the lands of their former tenants. Which, to be clear, uh, was more a problem of uh, Lebanese and foreign landlords uh, before the 1930s than it was of Palestin large Palestinian Arab landlords. That is to say that the bulk of land sales by Arabs to Jews over the 1920s is predominantly coming from uh, non-Palestinian Arab landlords. Okay, I'm almost at the end of my prefatory comments here, but uh, you no doubt will have noticed this curious category, liberal despotism, which I throw out rather early on in the text, and then, to my thinking, fail to develop uh, particularly adequately. But uh, what I can say uh, is that this is not simply a rhetorical reversal or a gesture on my part, although it is at this point an experiment that I'm trying to think through uh, using liberal despotism as a kind of category for interrogating uh, the colonial regime. What I might add about this uh, that isn't in the paper is that uh, the liberal despotism of the mandatory state in Palestine shares with other despotisms the effacement of the individual. Right? The effacement of the individual cultivator, of the sharecropper, of the uh, villager, right? of, uh, of the countryside uh, in all of its smallest integuments. <clears throat> in part, this is uh, the individual's, I would argue, the individual is effaced through uh, fantasies of growth, particularly in the 1920s, and a model of trickle-down economic development that I think I've referenced in the paper which I'm happy to talk a little bit more about. Um, but it's also a function of the growth of collective punishment, which I also tried to develop a little bit in the paper, as a strategy for dealing particularly with the countryside and with rural dissent. Uh, 
This would include, although I don't talk about it in the paper again, uh, not just dissent vis-a-vis uh, -vis the government and its policy of supporting the development of the Jewish national home, of course, but also internal um, uh, Arab conf intra-Arab conflicts were also punished with uh, collective punishments after 1921. Right, so with the use of collective punishment, uh, regular uh, rights before a court, uh, rights to a trial, the notion of individual rights are obviated, right? Again, the individual is effaced. Okay, so it should be clear that I'm not just trying to invoke, uh, by using the category liberal despotism, I'm not just trying to invoke what we could call the tyranny of the state's Zionist mission, which was despised by the Arab population. <clears throat> But I'm trying to get at um, a kind of uh, vacillation between both a sort of grand colonial liberal uh, planning and imagination of the ability of colonial planners to transform society on one side, so kind of a, a colonial grand planning, <clears throat> and on the other side, a kind of persistent neglect of the actual conditions of the countryside and of uh, 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 the producing classes there. Okay. Finally, it strikes me, of course, in hindsight, after I've given you the paper, that one of the things that I'm trying to wrestle with in this paper, which is often more of a political economy of the mandate than it is an actual kind of uh, sustained interrogation of peasant practices of resistance is that what I'm actually describing here are anti-systemic practices, right? So maybe this is another conversation that we can take up here. I would say that my paper does not adequately theorize the type of anti-systemic practices that I have uh, loosely uh, cataloged and begun to describe in this paper and in the dissertation. I think there are a couple uh, ways of approaching this question, at least two that I'll entertain here for just a second. One is a Gramscian notion of popular culture uh, and trying to approach uh, the evolving set of tactics and strategies on the part of the peasantry to remain on the land in their villages <clears throat> as a, an iteration and a redevelopment of older kind of uh, peasant traditions, right? Uh, and using that rather loaded word in a, in a, I've just been reading Stuart Hall uh, talking about the notion of tradition as uh, it's least useful when it's conceived of as a static notion, right? So here I'm clearly uh, gesturing towards the idea of a tradition that is actively in flux, which I think Ted Swedenberg and several other people have uh, uh, long done before me. The other uh, mode of kind of understanding the anti-systemic practices of the peasantry that I'm trying to document here is through uh, the lens of nationalism, right? And this is almost a fallback in the discussion of the Palestinian national movement in this period. It's almost uh, impossible sort of not to refer to uh, the rise of nationalism even as uh, you know, it must be said that really this is a this is a kind of 
analysis that comes about through reading practices, right? It's not because the peasants are delivering long petitions that claim to be the Palestinian nation saying X, Y, and Z, right? That's what the notables are doing, and they get the peasants supposedly to sign off on these things. <clears throat> but nevertheless, nationalism becomes a kind of residual category, right? How to think about sort of uh, the changing, obviously anti-colonial problematic uh, that comes into play under uh, the British mandate. Uh, so rather clumsily, I think I will leave things there and hope that some of you can push me around um, about this. Thank you. Well, I mean, you know, it's, like I said, it's a, it's a real pleasure to have you here, Charles, because you, I mean, there aren't very many people that have really spent so long in the archives and with the material over uh, in relation to trying to recover a history of the peasantry and the origins and practices of this uprising and the forms of, I mean, we, we do get a, a picture of, you know, between 1919 and 1923, there's a round of activism and then there's a certain kind of quiescence and a reshuffling and then 1929 and then perhaps uh, around 1930 there's also this youth or the educated sons of those urban notables who then start organizing and then that, that uh, there's, an there's, a, there's a piece of it there and then there are, there are these organizations like the Green Hand, the Green Hand, uh, more sort of uh, uh, groups of uh, armed groups that grow up among with, with peasant and Bedouin involvement that mount attacks on Jewish settlements. And then, of course, the uprising of 36 to 7 with the, the general strike uh, and the, you know, the higher executive committee and then peasant involvement, armed bands, and then, and then other aspects like ex-Ottoman soldiers and others showing up like Fawzi al in 1936 and others. And so, you know, you know uh, there, this challenge was laid down, wasn't it, by after, I mean, you had a kind of a neo-Orientalist scholarship on this. There were people like Tom Bowden who wrote on it and really they just said, well, the uprising is a group of marauding bands who are endlessly divided by peculiar traditional loyalties and they, 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 they are feudalists and, and they simply you know, we, we can't make much sense of their wild and outrageous protests. Well, the, the, Tom Bowden published an article in Middle Eastern Studies in 1977, that's what I'm referring to, yeah. I think, 77. Um, but then you had uh, a scholarship that comes out of historical sociology, historical materialism, that says, no, we can make sense of this more in terms of class, and Ted Swedenberg is one of those, but he's also very attentive to culture and... A, a, a narrative as well and so it's great to have Charles Anderson here because there aren't very many people on the planet who can uh, address these questions with some degree of, of authority and knowledge and so and I think what I mean what your paper obviously shows I, I mean it clearly shows that there I mean amid the blindness of the colonial state and exactly how we want to characterize you know, forms of liberal despotism but there are all these very intensive pressures, right? And this is clear uh, on uh, rural cultivators of one kind or another, whether they're sharecroppers, whether they have rights uh, held in common, as in the Mushar kind of land, or whether they're owner cultivators, or whether they hold a property title that's registered somewhere, and so they're a kind of a small holding peasantry. And there's Bedouin there somewhere as well. 
And there's pressures, aren't there? There's eviction that happens because land has been sold from under their feet to Jewish settlers. There's the pressures that come from the colonial state that's on the one side, you know, reforming the, 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 the or try or claiming to be reforming the land system. And I, I, I mean, I think the, the blindness of it and the violence of those interventions, the attempt to change and to, to intervene on taxes, this all comes out pretty well, I thought, in the, in the paper. And, it's, and, it, and I think that does work as a counterpoint to those who, I mean, there is this whole language of the, the shift to a colonial developmental state that you get. You get it in Elizabeth Thompson in Syria in the late 30s, early 40s. You get it in the history of sub-Saharan Africa. I think Charles Anderson's partly saying, you know, this is a bit overdone. Uh, this colonial state was blind. It intervened in a, in a way that, that, that was violent. And, and, you know, the collective punishment that gets established very early for... Uh, and this imposition of fines on whole villages when any one person had you know, broken the law, quote-unquote, but of course a practice that we could also see as a kind of resistance. And those kinds of resistance that you speak about, they mesh with the sorts of things, the, the, the sabotage, the attacks on officials or on Zionist settlers or on tax collectors or on people carrying out cadastral surveys. They look very much like the sorts of things that peasantries were doing, say, in Egypt, uh, uh, in Nathan Brown's book, Peasants, Politics, the, peasant, uh, the Struggle Against the State, Peasants and Politics in Modern Egypt. So you have these, uh, I mean, Nathan Brown has various, you know, the atomistic form where it's just one person and they attack uh, somebody who did a, a land parcel uh, division that they didn't agree with, or it's more collective, but there are norms and notions of justice and collective... Uh, 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 norms that are involved in that but so it looks a bit like that but then we can see that there's something more intensive going on somehow with the evictions and the dispossession and the question of and the usury you have this that's very helpful so we discover that this is happening I'm glad that you say you're going to be cautious about the word proletarianization because is that the central process at work I wasn't 100% sure whether you said, uh, I thought some part of your paper seemed to indicate that the British did want to produce a, uh, a small holding peasantry. I, I was a bit, maybe you could clarify that, because you, I got this sense of the idea that the British thought that what would be economically productive would be people who held title to land, small family holdings, and that this was, uh, and that model is very common. It becomes common in Iraq in the 40s and 50s if you look at. Bernier's work and, and so on and, it, and of course it's very different to the collectivist model that comes out of Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union which isn't about property rights at all it's about collective farming so but um, but, but, but anyway yeah, proletarianization of course it brings up all this modernist linear teleological process that's, that people are supposed to go through but it's almost always more complicated even those workers who are in Haifa uh, who Ezzeldim al Qassam is mobilizing, they're working in the dockyards or they're poor or they're unemployed. They might have links to the land somehow, even if it's a small land parcel that they can no longer can support them. Or you know, there's always this complicated, complex relations and means of production. But I think but, but it's obvious that your work is, is illuminating that in ways that we, that we don't know. Although I did want to ask you 
about the sharecropping, which shows up as a social safety net. And that, that's, that, I, I, that jarred with me a bit, the idea that sharecropping would be a social safety net. So it might be that you might want it. Um, because you do mention a certain kind of a contract mm -hmm. called the Mugerisa, mm -hmm. which whereby if, you, if you're a peasant and you work the land, or a sharecropper and you work the land for long enough, you acquire title to it. But I think that's a, a very... A portion of it. Right. But it's a very specific kind of contract. In Absolutely. The, in, the st in this book by Verlers on land tenure in Syria, that only happens in the relatively prosperous plains. It's to do with citrus cultivation. And it's not, you know, the sharecropping of the Syrian interior is so much more uh, impoverished, I suppose. And uh, you just get a land parcel that, you, that can allow you to reproduce your means of subsistence, which means Leban and Burgul and nothing much else. You know, not even tea, not even sugar, but and then and then everything else is extracted. So, but but you know, but I'm sure that you could. But obviously, what Anderson is presenting is an analysis that says, in one way or another, these class pressures matter enormously in the origins of the uprising. But obviously, the question that comes from someone like me or from you know, you can, this question would come from social movements theory or theories of contentious politics or, or anyone who, who um, is cautious about this idea that, um, uh, that resistance emerges as a direct result of, uh, of, of pressure and grievance, etc. Anyone who, who thinks, well, there must be an intervening variable somewhere that involves organization, it involves culture, it involves mobilization, it involves tactics, strategies, particular, uh, if you will, strengths and possibilities that would enable people to act collectively. Because, of course, some of those who are the most super exploited have no possibility of acting collectively. So, that, and, and I saw what you were saying at the end seemed to indicate that you're sensitive to that question because you start to say well we have to look at things like popular culture we have to study this issue of nationalism because how is it that people gather together the resources and the capacity organizationally to be able to mount collective action because that doesn't just emerge in a linear or spasmodic in the words of E.P. Thompson way from huge pressures that are material and, uh, and otherwise and so uh, uh, that, that my angle is very much to push you on that side of things and to say where do the organizational resources coming to come from, how do people get organized, and especially I wanted more of a distinction between, because on the one side there's the notable leadership who are nationalists uh, that surrounding you know, the Supreme Muslim Council and their urban their, and, and, and people like you know, the Mufti, Al-Husseini, etc. in the cities, and they, they have a certain nationalist position in the political field. They, they're these kind of uneasy intermediaries with the British. And they have a certain political project. But they're, they're and, and, of course, and as you argue, um, quite rightly, I think, uh, there's huge amounts of disaffection with their capacity to act as intermediaries with the British who will be able to uh, deliver on Arab or Palestinian nationalist uh, 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 goals and or addressing the social and economic crisis in the countryside. So that's, that's clear and that really comes across. But don't you also, when you're talking about social class, don't you have to distinguish between that 
kind of disaffection and how that leads into protest I think it's very important and then and the fact that there's a whole raft of users and landowners and merchants who are exploiting peasantries in all sorts of ways but they're nothing to do with the nationalist leadership and they don't have a political project and uh, because but and this is to push you on you know to what extent is this uprising as a result of the you know the severing of the authority and the hegemony the crisis of authority of those intermediary notable leaderships because that's got to be hugely important mm -hmm. but to what extent is it about that and that would be a more sort of Gramscian type approach uh, it so happens I'm very sympathetic to that to this or to this idea no no it's not really to do with that it's to do with the grinding exploitation on the land and people rising up against that because they're two to they're quite different kinds of explanations and I, I wanted to see I wanted to push you on you know which is it because it's the second one that would be a class explanation, more, more, a more thorough going class explanation. Because I also want to know, it because comparatively in the history of the region, the history of when it is that sharecropping or smallholding peasantries actually rise up. It's not common. It's very unusual in, in the kind of the uprising that we see in Palestine in the late 1930s. You don't, I mean, it's a, it's a very fraught endeavour. You have it up and down the Nile, and there was one in 1820, there's another rising in 1865, but the risings in Algeria and elsewhere, they're, they're Sufi orders, they're tribal formations, and, they're, and, and, and other networks which sustain mobilisations against the French. It's not so much the sharecropping or smallholding peasantry. Very, and in Nathan Brown's book on peasant politics, they only rise, I mean, they appear in 1919. But again, their interests very directly threatened. So anyway, I've been talking too long. But those are so I, I, I did I, uh, I did want to get this uh, a stronger sense of you know the ways in which those sharecropping peasantries managed to start to move in 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 the late 1930s, partly in a comparative context because it is quite dramatic that they would be able to and and you know because there are alliances, aren't there, that are forged? I, I mean, with I mean the people who call the general strike. Aren't they? This happens in 1936, and there's just been a 50-day general strike in Syria, and it led to the negotiations with the French in 36. And then they say, "Ah, let's have a general strike here in Palestine," and uh, so they use that tactic. And then everybody comes out, the workers and the retailers and everybody else. And then, and so there are obviously there are ways in which peasantries and others can get stitched into uh, a much larger coalition I suppose so those are some sorts of questions and uh, but uh, but I wanted you know I wanted to thank you because this is a rich and interesting uh, 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 paper and it allows us to have this discussion all right so you uh, you can uh, respond to that now if you like or we can have we can just raise a whole a whole series more uh, questions and uh, and come back to you what would you prefer to do what would you all prefer to do? Well, maybe you should try to answer. Okay. I prefer to go around, really, and then you can. It's better. We were listening to <laughs> to both of you, and, and that was better if you didn't get into it now. All right. So Why don't we gather a couple questions? But perhaps of because course. you had the other view, maybe you, would course. you like to begin? <laughs> um, what happens? Um, just to read the papers I was away. I only saw the English yesterday, so I'm really pleasant this. But uh, my name is Amir. Actually, I'm writing uh, about 
said, I'm writing about uh, Druze mm. in Palestine during that period. I'm trying to answer the question through my thesis, why the Druze in particular? Uh, which very much similar to this case, as, but, but more focusing on the Galilee, my PhD. Why didn't it take part on the revolt in 1939 and in 1948? So basically, we are answering, we are questioning the same question, but I'm looking at it more through uh, the theoretical uh, stuff that uh, John just put is more from contentious politics and social mobilizations ideas. And I have to say that I first I, I found it quite problematic, generally speaking, to look at 1948, looking at the British mandate, and to distinguish or to separate between the development of the issue and the colonial mandate. I think it's it's the more you read about it, you basically come to the point where it's basically, it's on the top level, it's there, the world of us. A full collaboration, it was just a question of time. The meaning of the issue in Hebrew means the state before, the pre-state of the state. Means settlement, well, literally. it's settlement, but... Means pre-state community. The, the, the meaning behind it, not the, 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 not, not the whole the way it translated, it's that basically we are building the state, and it's just a question of time yeah. until we announce the state. Yeah. So basically, 15 of May 1948 was the announcement of the state, but there was already state somewhere from the first day arrived to Palestine, as Balfour, as everyone else, they knew exactly what they were doing. They wanted to establish a Jewish state in Palestine, full stop. It doesn't matter how, under which flag, under which uh, issue, where. And the whole development of the issue, basically, in Palestine was based on this idea. So the development of, the, of Palestine on the, on the coast and the main cities wasn't just a random idea. There was a purpose behind it. That's where they wanted to first put control. It's a question of time until we control the, the coast. And then we take it from there slowly to the Galilee, to the West Bank and uh, Gaza and all this in 1967 and afterwards. So separating between, the separation between the issue and the colonial, uh, colonial British colonial in, 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 uh, in Palestine is problematic. I think that's in the first place, I will say. And from here on, I will say the fact that the rural uh, parts and the Palestinian peasantry wasn't involved in the whole process until 1948. It wasn't just a coincidence thing. It was part of the policy that the, the, the British and the issue of leadership worked on it and they made sure that the peasantry and the Palestinians stay out of the picture through all the, the period. I had conversation with people who had who lived in Palestine and even from my village town. I come from Shafa'ala, which is on, on the Galilee. And trust me, some people until 1948 didn't know anything about what was going in the, in the main cities in Palestine. It was completely out of the picture. They will, they will travel to Tel Aviv, they will travel to Haifa, they will sell their products, but as a national project, and that's what John just talked about, they were not part of this national project until the last minute, and basically until 1948. They basically didn't have any idea about nationalism and national idea as a Palestine. Okay, interesting.
I think we should take some more, don't you? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my name is Salim and I, I'm not an academic, so you must give me advice here, something untoward or mm. I'm a campaigner. But by all means. Campaign of Palestine. I've read your paper. I really want to thank you for the paper. It was really wonderful to go through it. Um, it's quite unusual to receive a paper, and you know, for us, and then you know, read it or roughly it. Very fascinating paper. Thank you. In terms of reclaiming history as well, that's lost out. So that's my general interest as well, because I'm interested in imperial history generally. And um, and and so uh, I want to challenge you on this violent colonial state. Um, I don't know why I use that term, because to me it seems to be a systematic policy. Because I was born in Kenya, where um, um, the British colonized Kenya after the, you know, in about late 1990s on, sorry, 1890s onwards. And it was, um, they found this wonderful highlands, prime land, very fertile, uh, where tea and coffee could be grown. And hey, but this land was not terra nullis, you know, mm. there's black peasantry on that. Mm. And the, the peasantry was dispossessed systematically, looted systematically. Now, there was, a, there was a long period when the peasants did try to mobilize politically, they set up parties, the leaders of the exile, ultimately. Ultimately, when the political channels were completely shut off, they took to arms. And you call it the Mau Mau movement, grew up in the 1950s. I was there, by the way, so I was 11 years old, so I witnessed what was getting on in Nairobi as well. I never knew about the history until I, until my 60s or 70s, when I began reading about it. Again, the recurring history. Of that. So for me, it was a systematic policy. Uh, you know, you quote Mike Bess, you know, is it late Victorian Holocaust? Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at what happens in Andhra Pradesh, Karnataka, it's a massive uh, dispossession of, you know, um, changing of land tenure. The British were the first, in fact, um, colonized India, which the courage to, in fact, uh, not courage, or the corruption to set around reorganizing the land tenure system completely in India. We had massive famines there. We had some like 30, 14 million people dining that people never, never talk about. And you had peasants starving. There was an endless mass of it. And the whole Malthusian argument was applied severely in India. Mm. This was the right thing to do. This, this is what it was like. And the problem was overpopulation. You know, you know the whole Malthusian thesis. Some of the governors were trained in the Hellbury School around here by Thomas Malthus himself. Um, and the issue for me is that it wasn't violence at all. It was a systematic policy of liberal, liberal, um, what is militant liberalism, militant capitalism, mm. you know, utilitarianism as well, um, to say that private property is a key, private property land, which England saw, an English peasant from this period as well. You know? And, and that's the thing that interests me here, as well, partly, is, is that when you talk to Marxists, for example, you know, from leftist turn, even Marx talked about oriental despotism. Yes, you mentioned that term as well, which people, you know, says so if as if feudal Europe was different from Oriental areas were, but there are two bits of restraints essentially, you know, live, living off uh, peasant taxation, mm. and then uh, then I find interesting if you look at India as well, the extent of taxation would impose on Indian peasantry, and impoverishing them was an extremely significant factor, and taxation was accepted very often to torture as well, mm. people were punished. People tortured and whipped if you don't actually get it. And there are all class of Indians which would do that. You know, you had the Jamindars who collected the tax as well. Yeah, so, so, in a sense, I see a systematic issue of here mm. of, of a colonial state. And what comes to me is, 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 because coming from a colonial country myself, 
is the role of the state. And, 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 and you know, the state has the role of the state is an extremely powerful instrument. In fact, it's called the armed power, the, 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 the monopoly of violence. And then it's got the power. I mean, you do talk about the amount of you know, structure they created after the mandate. You do talk about the, the kind of um, explosive growth in the state itself into the, you know, the, the, the security apparatus, into the prisons, etc. India yeah. had a similar experience. Yeah. Kenya had a similar experience. <coughs> so I'm not saying that you, you know, but I think there are similar, I don't know what French asked me to do. But no, in no. terms of peasantry, it's absolutely fascinating that for me, it's, it, although people say the petty bourgeois, whatever it is, there are also historical agency, mm. you know, in a sense. And I don't know, I'm not talking about historical juncture where, where mm. they're, they're, they're quite fragmented when they come together. At what point do they actually join the revolt or not? But if you look at the Chinese Revolution, if you look at the Cuban Revolution, if you look at Algerian Revolution, the peasantry played a significant role in this revolution mm. at the point when, the, you know, yeah. when, when Boba, they played a significant role in the revolution mm. everywhere since the 20th century. So it's quite refreshing for you to dig yeah. that bit of history out. Yeah. Very yeah. refreshing indeed. That's what and I was trying to do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Completely non-academic comment. No, no. A wonderful set of comments. Yeah. Very useful. Is there anyone who wants to speak to either of these two issues? Or something closely related? Yeah. I, I was just going to say, firstly, um, I'm Michael Mason. I'm from the Jockey uh, Environment Department. So, uh, very different sort of uh, interest from more contemporary in the region, but I very much into the paper. So thank you very much for that. Um, the, the discussion about the sort of wider colonial project, mm. I was thinking about just in terms of your access to what you're seeing in the archives mm. as justifying what's going on, as surveying what's going on. One of the issues is um, to respond to John's point about whether this particular type of shared problem specific to this area. Is, is, is for me a more ge uh, geographic differentiated picture of what's going on in different areas, uh, which might then add the nuance to, yeah. to the explanation. Um, but in terms of what the colonial project, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, my work is kind of interested in looking at how the region is represented environmentally, ecologically, and there's some in interesting environmental history by people like Dana Davis uh, looking at the region and, 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 and talking about what they call a declensionist narrative of Palestine, hmm. which is the, the, the British, not just Palestine, other colonies, sort of, as you mentioned, sort of the Malthusian framing, um, justifying policy in terms of a narrative of environmental deterioration or destruction in which the inhabitants have an active part. And depending on the, who the inhabitants are and their, their type of sort of livelihood, uh, 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 the, the sort of agricultural means, they can be more or less complicit in that destruction and how that, I don't know whether in terms of the archives you, you're picking this up at all in terms of surveys of the landscape, surveys of the, of the farming. I imagine the British would be pretty thorough in terms of what they're doing okay, under the mandate. One of the things, an example of this might be for example the, um, whether the British were then complicit with the, with the Zionists in terms of looking at the so-called um, temporary uh, intermittent agricultural settlements, I think, called Kirba. These things which look like mm. they're deserted, mm -hmm. but they're actually used at harvest yeah. time or, yeah. or when you plough. And, and look ruined. I don't know from the archives, if British go around the landscape and say, well, there you are. Look at these, look at these ruined villages. This is a, this is a pre-modern feudal agricultural sort of system. 
and misreading the landscape in the ways in which the Zionists did either deliberately or unintentionally, or both. Sort of to, just to sort of to try to justify, as you say, so maybe in the paper, this 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 increasing uh, the strategy of the state to increase the land under the control of the state domain. Mm. Now, as a question, I don't know. I've got no idea from. But I'd be interested in terms of your uh, time in the archives, whether yeah. you pick that up as any sort of significant uh, element. And did you get the thing about the declensionist? Because I confess I don't, I don't, I don't know what that means. It, 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 yeah. Thank you, John. It's a narrative, narrative with, uh, in terms of deterioration or destruction. Right. There's, there's a, I think she's a. And it's a with the connotation. Is it or what is it? Yeah, she, she claims predominantly a colonial right. discourse, but can be used in other contexts. Okay. But, but Dinah Davis talks about it in terms of um, late 19th century sort of British surveys of, of Palestine and earlier 20th century into the mandate of okay. justifying a colonial discourse that we're going to save them yeah. from their it's destruction a, it's environment. It's a pseudo-naturalistic description, right? Yeah, it's kind of right? a as, as, right, okay. Uh, okay. narrative. Yeah. Okay. It's a Solarian on Terra Nullius type thing. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like the survey of Western Palestine, yeah. you, you have the, you have the, uh, the, the floral fauna survey undertaken by something called Tristram Baker, clergyman, who discovers all these residual biblical species of, of, the, of, of the land of milk and honey, which somehow survived in spite of all these people uh, uh, degrading the landscape, and we, the British, can help reforest and, 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 and you know, regenerate the landscape. Okay, maybe I... One thing I would say is that, really, when you say it didn't, you know, it just didn't begin in 1948, that's revealing, because lots of people talk about 1948, mm -hmm. and, you know, you foregrounded from, from, from 1917 onwards, you know, and then, site papers agreement and the mandate comes in being whatever and the fact what is very clear is that there's clear transference you know the British policy is very clear to some of Jewish homeland there's you know you talk about how Jewish company Jewish enterprise was favored in many ways to mm -hmm. the tariffs etc while there was heavy taxes on the Palestinians so it's this very very clear narrative there established constantly to, to ensure that the, the Jewish homeland policy comes to fruition so it wasn't really a declaration this whole kind of mystery structure set up systematically to ensure that that homeland is established in the longest run. I think that's a wonderful place for me to perhaps yeah. begin to answer because a lot of you are asking questions about intentionality, right? And the question is, did policy deliberately do this, right? Was it deliberately intended to dispossess the, the peasantry? So. I'm going to hopefully not give a tremendously rambling and confusing answer, and if I do, then you should intrude. Um, but from my way of thinking, to a certain extent, right, uh, as I think you've responded to um, uh, uh, quite a bit, it, it's, I'll just say it's surprising to me that no one has quite delved into these subjects in the way that I've tried to catalog them here, right? To, so part of what I'm trying to do in the dissertation and obviously in the paper is kind of catalog the weights that are ratcheting up on the backs of the peasantry, right? In a very simple kind of additive kind of way, right? Or, or I'll say simple way, but perhaps it's not so simple. Um, and that brings one to the obvious question of, well, it, it seems pretty clear that there's a set of policies that it, certainly by the end of the 1920s are 
tremendously destructive of the peasantry's ability to stay on the land. And that intersects with a set of other circumstances, right? Like the decline in global prices for the kinds of commodities that are being marketed internationally. And then with a further conjuncture uh, in the early 1930s of around four years of really horrendous um, harvests and total failures of harvest that actually really kind of brings this chapter sort of to a close, right? And the British totally change the tax system and they create a tax based on uh, landed property and the, the tithe for all effective purposes is, is null and void. Um, reading the archive, as one or two of you have sort of brought up, um, and reading the myriad histories that are out there, it becomes, uh, and answering the question that I think you posed first, John, um, do the British want a small holding peasantry? The answer is definitely yes. Right, it's a it's a curious, um, internally incoherent policy. Right, that on one hand wants to create this dynamic sector uh, that that's imagined as first of all it's imagined as split sectors. Right, the Jewish sector is spoken of as a sector, as if it's not integrated into the rest of the country. Right, um, but my argument vis-a-vis -vis this sort of trickle-down theory as I think I lay out in the beginning of the paper, right, is that uh, the yeshuv is to provide the economic dynamism that will power the rest of the colony. While it's hoped, the smallholders will stay in place on what's left of their lands. There we've already entered into one of the first contradictions because if they're supposed to be selling quote-unquote excess lands, then how are they staying on the land in the first place? Right, very quickly we get into this sort of circular conversation of what is the directive of policy? And I guess the easiest way to answer it, I would say, is that uh, the Zionists more often than not, except perhaps with the question of state lands, tend to win out these debates, right? So they tend to win out the debates vis-a-vis -vis tariffs, right? Even though you've got internal uh, uh, officers of the government that are saying, these are disastrous policies. You're undercutting what my whole business in Palestine is in the first place, right, in the, in, in the case of the Department of Agriculture, right? Um, so you have, I think, the easiest way to begin to get at this is, a, is an absolutely uh, gigantic set of contradictions, right, a, a, at the center of policy, which very easily gives the appearance of a conspiracy, right, of a deliberate conspiracy to dispossess uh, a large quotient of the peasantry. Now, again, answering this question or approaching this question, it gets complicated, right? Because I think certain of the governmental officers that wrote uh, the Balfour Declaration or were on board when that policy was inaugurated, they naturally envisioned, I think as Amir, you suggested, that from the outset, and they later admitted, that what they meant all along was a Jewish state would eventually come into being, right? But the policymakers on the ground in Palestine who actually have to rule have a different set of concerns in front of them. And their concerns are framed by a time horizon that's much closer, right? They don't want to see the people under their charge starving, right? They don't want to see British colonialism falling into the mud, right? And they also don't want to see a, a massive exodus of the peasantry into uh, the, the, the slums of, uh, of the coastal cities, which they imagine to be kind of hotbeds of nationalist activism and, and all of the problems that come uh, uh, therewith. 
So I think unpacking the question of intentionality gets intensely messy uh, very early on, but I think what we can say is that so long as the commitment to the Jewish national home trumped right, the interests of, uh, of any segment of the Palestinians, to a certain extent, the, 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 the inevitable consequences are those that I've detailed in the paper, right? Or tried to detail in the paper. Um, so, I would say they're very concerned, uh, again, this, the cooperatives venture that comes into the paper very late, around page 50, maybe people were, had dozed off by that point, but in any case, uh, th there's this brief effort to create a cooperatives network on the model of Punjab or on the model of other uh, uh, colonial territories that would help, again, ground uh, those, those peasants that were at risk of, of, uh, of uh, total and final dispossession to reground them into the countryside. But, uh, uh, so there is this interest in creating a yeomanry, right? a kind of yeoman model, but really there's no energy put into it, or the amount of energy that's put into it is totally overcome by the set of other circumstances and contradictions that have mounted to this point, right? Um, Okay, and if that's unclear, please, anybody, come back on me. Proletarianization as a modernist teleology. I'm glad you said that, because I'm glad someone else is piling on me about this. <laughs> I don't have a good answer for how to think about this, right? But, but, and the standard, I should have said at the outset, the sort of standard... Uh, narrative about proletarianization of the Arab population in Palestine uh, basically holds that it wasn't until World War II that you have a kind of classic modernist proletariat being developed, basically under the conditions of uh, all of the military, Palestine gets converted into a giant military base, a regional military base for the British, that means tons of money comes pouring in from the imperial exchequer. That means all of the conditions that I've been cataloging here that then light the fire or help light the fire of 1936 through 1939, uh, those conditions are, are almost overnight uh, changed from the 1939 to 1945 period. Um, <clears throat> and that's seen as kind of the... the, the, the uh, point of a real kind of Arab-Palestinian uh, proletariat. So I'm not trying to use proletariat in a sort of classical Marxist uh, sense here or to call up these modernist teleologies, but I take the point that that's what it inevitably does, right? So this is something that I need to think about. Um, and I also take the point that I heard you say, uh, I think, that uh, this process of moving from uh, a landed from a state as a landed peasant to a kind of uh, intermediate zone, perhaps sharecropping or doing something else, to some uh, portion of the population that ultimately is totally severed from the land. They're not sharecroppers. Uh, at most, they're seasonal laborers, and they uh, come to live in slums in Haifa and Jaffa in particular. Um, that that's a very nonlinear process and intensely messy and, and honestly from uh, chugging away in the archives for many months I have found little documentation that would really help us kind of square the circle uh, and get to a, a more clear picture uh, than some of the comments that I've already made to you uh, here today and in the paper and in my dissertation. So I take the point that uh, this is a 
it's a kind of uh, a very spongy, messy um, uh, uh, process. And it's complicated by the fact that, uh, you know, some new research, for instance, uh, Amos Nadan's book on um, colonial policy in the countryside vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Arab peasantry uh, has documented that, for instance, Musha wasn't just diminished on account of uh, Ifraz, that is, uh, official partition operations under the uh, uh, device of the state, uh, but new tracts of Musha were actually, that is, collective Arab commons, were actually created. Amos? Amos Nadan, N-A-D-A-N. Uh, the book's from 2006 or seven, I think. Uh, it's cited in the text. Uh, excuse me? Yes, yes, absolutely. It's cited in the text. If you go into the footnotes and you, you know, do the command F with Nadan, you'll find it. Can you tell us about the archive that you basically used? Sure. Well, okay, maybe not before you continue, because you're in the middle of the thought. But no, no, I'm really basically at the end of that thought. <laughs> Proletarianization, geez. Um, okay, that's not very constructive, but in any case, uh, I'll throw up my hands there. All right, sharecropping as a social safety net, uh, and Michael, your um, your comment there is the exact comment that I was basically just given at another forum where I gave another version of this paper, which is to disaggregate the regions to understand the processes that are happening here. I tried to note in the paper, although it's very, very schematic, that in the Central Highlands region, basically from Janine down to Hebron, uh, right. This is the this is the core region where sharecropping is a is a more prominent um, phenomenon, and where the bonds between uh, lords and peasants, to use those terms, and anyone can fight with me if they want to about them. People often do. Um, uh, those type those bonds uh, retain something of the older paternalism, right? That's sort of referenced in here as a as a as a social compact that's in the process of falling apart. Whereas in the coastal regions, uh, by the turn of the 20th century, you're uh, more likely to have, um, uh, particularly in areas where you can grow citrus, citrus plantations or other kinds of plantations that actually used free labor, right? So they, they worked on a different model, right? They, where uh, individual uh, peasant proprietorship was uh, not the dominant uh, uh, local form of production. So you're, I take your point very much, Michael, but um, that, uh, again, as other folks have been telling me, this needs to be punched up into the paper so that we have a more kind of um, variegate, variegated and geographically specific sense of these developments. My problem is that, you know, I'm, I'm so concerned here, as maybe uh, is self-evident, with kind of redrawing a sort of general portrait of what was being done to the peasantry and how they were interacting with the types of colonial policies, that some of that specificity has been lost in my effort to kind of create that overarching picture. So clearly I need to strike more of a balance there. Um, and I really appreciate you saying that. Vis-a-vis -vis your uh, comment about the Khirbet, the, the, the satellite villages mm -hmm. that often appeared as ruins, it's a very interesting question. Um, I have zero evidence to show that they discriminated between what they thought was a uh, a no longer um, <coughs> used settlement and a, and a, and a you know, obviously inhabited village. Mm. The problem here, I think, is that um, they're much more concerned with questions about what can be deemed state domain, 
right? And with fighting with peasants in various areas over claiming uh, Miri land as state domain, meaning that the state can just dispose of it as it likes, which, as you saw with the Bisan lands dispute that basically almost inaugurates the, the civil administration, uh, right? The administration gets a, you know, the equivalent of a pie in its face very quickly um, when it tries to reassign the ownership of those lands. Um, and to the best of my ability to, 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 to the best of my researchers' ability, I would say that basically sets a template for the peasants to kind of continuously claim whatever kind of plot of land was adjacent to them, that there would be any kind of proceeding related, uh, or, or, or whether the status uh, of uh, any, anything around them was in the air, uh, people showed up uh, by hook or by crook. Okay. Maybe one final comment, and I'm sorry for going on at length. Um, actually, uh, Amir, I should definitely respond to what you said, because that would be very remiss of me not to. Um, in the paper, uh, I'm not trying to draw a distinction between the Yishuv and the colonial state. Not a hard and fast distinction. Um, ver I very much agree with uh, the majority of your thrust there that... Uh, that uh, the colonial state was very much an enabler of the issue. And I think that's what I'm trying to document vis-a-vis -vis the status uh, of the peasantry in the period that the paper examines. But where I will take issue with what you said uh, is this notion that the peasants were totally distant from nationalist activity, had no idea about the national question, that all of this came upon them as a big surprise in 1948. Um, I I will say that I am more than deeply suspicious of this narrative, which I imagine some uh, people who are still alive today might uh, trot out to sort of say, uh, to sort of explain things in a certain way. And I would I would be curious about the context in which uh, uh, you've interacted with that kind of narrative, because. There's an overwhelming amount of evidence, not that the peasants saw themselves as a Palestinian Arab nation, right? This is something we're going to debate from now to eternity, right? When did the peasants identify as a Palestinian Arab nation? As if that's actually the question that we need to ask. I would reframe the question to say that what we're talking about is a set of anti-colonial practices, right? Whatever they call themselves is a second order question to the fact that they didn't want to be dominated by the British and they didn't want to suffer through British policies, and they didn't want to suffer at the expense of the growth of the Jewish national home. Right? Those are the most obviously available things that are animating their activism, as I try to uh, suggest um, in the paper. Um, but that does lead us back to a question of, right? when you see a set of practices throughout a territory that's administratively bounded, isn't there a question about how this population is starting to, con how those tactics are migrating from one area to another, how they're circulating in a zone? Doesn't it sort of inevitably bring up the problematic of identity? What is the identity of the people who see it as their need to resist this set of colonial encroachments, right? So I think it's really hard to get out of the nationalism question whether the peasants would, you know, pony up to the table and say, yes, I am a believer in the Palestinian Arab nation and that is why, you know, I'm marching out into the fields with my rifle. I mean, I don't think it's that straightforward. And I think the standard treatments that we've gotten, you know, particularly from the Zionist side of things that sort of, you know, say, look, there's no evidence that this is how the peasants saw themselves and actually the peasants were just 
you know, manipulated by the notables and that the nationalist movement was really just a rump of the elites that were discontented at their loss of privileges, that this is a very diminutive narrative that sort of, first of all, it completely pushes aside the whole political economy that I've tried to resuscitate and bring back into view here that certainly animates people's actions. And second of all, it presumes that, you know, peasants are automatons, right? That they only dance to the tune of someone else and that they can't think for themselves. And I think that's a ridiculous idea. I don't, I'm not saying that you're suggesting that, just to be clear, but that's very much in the back of my mind. That's, you know, if an Elan Pape, you know, right, if someone who's that out of the box, supposedly, right, can write the kind of Orientalist things that he does about peasants in his textbooks and in other places, Right, then I think that you know, we need to revisit this idea that the that peasants don't have uh, a kind of autonomous agency, right? So maybe to put the fine point on it, that's really what I'm trying to drive at here, right? Or semi autonomous agency, right? Okay, I've gone on for far too long. Um, thank you again for bearing with me. Well, we've got we can have some more questions or points. Round two. Please. Hi, I'm uh, Carly Beckham boys and my fellow here at the centre. Um, it's a pleasure to, to hear you talk about this, this particular um, subject. I'm writing a book at the moment, turning my PhD into a, a thesis on um, the reasons behind British policy towards Palestine, so coming from a very different angle. Mm. Um, and one of the things I, I was desperately pleased to hear you say was that phrase, internally incoherent, um, which is a, a, a lovely phrase that I may steal. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's something I, I have no patent on it. <laughs> and it's, it's something I come across, you know, every every facet of the, the policy emanating from, from Westminster. Um, and uh, and during the Arab Revolt, especially, uh, you talk about this issue of um, collective punishment. Mm. And um, I'd love to hear you talk a bit more about collective punishment mm. and, and uh, the accusations of uh, atrocities of torture and the torture centres that, that we've felt mm. that comes into it at all. Um, and again, the, the policy was in, internally incoherent uh, there as well. I've come across a lot of um, memos to and from um, uh, consulate in, in Damascus, for example, saying, hey, you know, people find out we're doing this, our reputation is going to be um, damaged abroad, and yet at the same time, the, uh, the war office trying to uh, maintain security and thinking that those, those uh, tactics are okay. Um, but, yeah. um, so, so thank you very much for that, so it's very reassuring. And um, I'd just like <laughs> to ask you a couple of very small empirical questions. Please. Um, first one was just that uh, you talked about the sort of systemic un unemployment of uh, the Palestinian um, Arabs. And one thing I came across uh, when I was reading the Haycraft Commission was in, in the report this idea that because the Turkish army was no longer taking recruits from that, that area, you had an awful lot more young men mm. who would ordinarily have gone off to far from areas of the Ottoman Empire mm. and died and not come home and had to earn money. Um, and I wondered whether um, uh, that was a credible um, conclusion that the, the, mm. the British had drawn. And this isn't my area at all, so I'm interested in your opinion. And um, I mean, I'd be interested in your opinion regardless. <laughs> but, uh, and then the, the only other thing was, um, in uh, Hope Simpson's report, uh, he gave an awful lot of uh, suggestions to improve um, Palestinian employment and, and the general economy. Um, you know, from there should be more agricultural education to more diversification of crops. Um, and I wondered whether that fell on deaf ears at um, uh, the actual um, government level in, in, in Palestine 
or whether it was just a, uh, you think maybe that was all dropped after the reversal of the cost of the white paper. Um, I mean, obviously, I know the, the cabinet debated those those conclusions, but whether the actual government on the ground did, I, I'd be interested to know. Excellent questions. Well, let's try and if anybody else who hasn't spoken yet would like to uh, say anything. Can I, can I ask about the broader context of the study with the PhD? Sure. You've kind of said that it's part of a larger study, but I'd like to kind of know kind of exactly where it fits in and what you were saying in your PhD. The other kind of really kind of question I have is, okay, you've this discontent and transformation of the peasantry, but it begs the question, why were Palestinian elites, political elites, not able to capitalize on it and mm. reform that discussion? Okay. Uh, my name is uh, Jinan Anzir, who's here, so I have a lot of practice uh, and uh, on kind of pathway displacement uh, outside of kind of the 1948 war. So I guess I'm kind of interested in the British mandate period, especially because a lot of the Salafian were kind of being displaced after that. But I was wondering if you found in your research that uh, they were displaced kind of outside of the borders of what was Palestine, and so mm. kind of after 48. Uh, being also unable to return, but then I guess because my research focuses on uh, uh, people uh, displaced Palestinians who fall outside the definitions, uh, the legal definitions of what a Palestinian is. Mm. Okay. I promise not to speak for us. All right. Oh, did, was there no. another question? Uh, well, just to add one point to this. Yeah, sure. Your back, the background of your thesis, uh, yeah. about your measurement sources, basically. The archives and Oh, yes, right. you did ask me that, yeah, and I totally... And let's just have one more then. To just one. last thing, um, um, briefly, uh, about, about the, the political um, overarching policy. And mm. in, 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 uh, interesting that, that you mentioned the setting was, was the Supreme Muslim Council or something setting up somebody. Um, so the focus then then was religion. You know what I mean? Yeah. Away from politics. You know? um, so so that, that's quite an interesting study you find very often in in, in, in the South Asian context as well, uh, and the division between Hindus and Muslims, for example. Yep. So you know, it's, a, it's a very it's a very relevant strategy now, for example, where it's very common in America, following 9-11 and the war on mm -hmm. terror, mm -hmm. to really posit Muslim politics in terms of religion only, mm -hmm. and kind of reductionist thing, saying that everything is about religion and the roots of problems by religion, yeah. rather than the politics. So that's, that's very, very interesting to me, and there's kind of, from, from your paper, again, the overarching policy <coughs> to divide and rule, and the question about the emergence of national consciousness, it's never a linear process, we know about this. It's never been a linear process. <laughs> a lot of people come together when they come, people are prevented, it's in as much as working class revolution, then we sort of never a linear process. We, we don't know when that happened as well, in a sense. Even if you look at various different histories, you find it takes a long time before you, in European national consciousness took a long time. They've invented. Even the notion of English nation is an invented nation as well. That happened for a century or two. Or German nation as well, nation as well. It emerges in the, in the mm. 19th century. Really. So it, it, you look at it. But certainly the, the, the politics uh, of, uh, even, even if within the British state there were divergent voices and then there, were, there were debate, but then, then there, was, there was a kind of conversation with a different official and, you know, within different departments at 
there's overarching politics about them was to get the Jewish homeland, to get the precursor established, you know. It was overarching policy. Okay. Uh, just, just can I, can I just add another question comment okay. on that? And based on what, what you were saying about sources, that is why I've always found interesting is just how much um, the Zionists uh, and the Yishuv were aware of what was happening in Pantheon and have you have you looked? Have you, have you found that's the case in uh, intelligence reports with the Nishoba from the Haganah? Yep. How does that match the British um, um, understanding? Yep. Again, wonderful set of questions. Uh, okay, so why don't I start with what I uh, boneheadedly forgot to do at the outset, which is to say something a little bit more about the project. Um, the dissertation and the book project is a history from below of the 1930s, right? So the key question is, where does the revolt come from? What does it look like? What animates it, right? And the hypothesis that started the project was the notion that um, where most narratives residually say the Arab Higher Committee and the Grand Mufti, right, led the Palestinian rebels, this is actually not really what a lot of the evidence actually tells us, right? The British and the Zionists are fixated on this idea and they repeat it ad nauseum, right? But the actual motors uh, of, uh, of the revolt are uh, predominantly the lower classes, right? Both urban and rural, right? And they're acting on their own volition, right? So part of what my dissertation tries to do, so the dissertation is divided into three segments. The first is called the rise of youth, basically chronicles 1928 to 1936. The second is called the peasant question or something like that, uh, which you saw a lot of elements of here. And the third is about the revolt itself and is a history of the revolt. Um, <clears throat> so uh, part of what I'm trying to show, uh, for instance, in the youth section is the emergence of not only youth as the kind of most populous organized uh, uh, contingency uh, uh, within the Palestinian contingent, excuse me, within the Palestinian national movement, right? But that it had it produced a set of modular forms, right? That there were these kinds of organizations where they had kind of statements that were oaths about what their purpose was, that were often very vaguely nationalist or close to something nationalist. That uh, often included statements such as, uh, you know, the you know the Safed Youth Society exists to help the peasants of the Safed region, you know, survive and to help the working classes. Right? It's very vague, right? It's it's as vague as could possibly be, right? But it it conjures up a kind of unity of national interest, right? Uh, and these kinds of organizations spread prolifically throughout the first half of the 1930s and are part of the infrastructure of this kind of youth upsurge that I argue alongside uh, uh, the kind of tinderbox that is the countryside helps push uh, the notables into endorsing the revolt, right? The notables at the head of the national, supposedly at the head of the national movement. So part of what I'm trying to do actually in the dissertation is uh, produce a more relational notion of leadership within the national movement itself, right? Rather than being the kind of possession of the notables, right, by dint of their social status that they would naturally be leaders, I try to show that actually leadership is a process, right? And that, that the, the so-called leaders of the movement often get pushed from below into taking positions that they don't want to take. Right? And that's actually what, what happens with the creation of the Arab Higher Committee, which uh, the actual scene in which the Arab Higher Committee is created, the, it's, it's the factions 
meeting in Jerusalem with hundreds of youth outside the building shouting about what they want, right? And it's, it's from such a setting that we get the elites walking outside with a declaration in their hand saying, strike until victory, right? And they come out, you know, in a much more stentorian note than they had previously, right? So, okay. So that's the that's the crux of the project, right? Is to is to say that the 1930s are a, a, a very are one of those you know kind of special moments in history where the kind of popular classes were actually uh, kind of much more uh, uh, efficacious in their organizing and much more searching in terms of their tactics and their vision of strategy than the elites, right? And that it's the lower classes that, that produced uh, armed uh, insurgency and kept it going for three brutal years of counterinsurgency. I mean, this is the longest uh, running Arab insurgency uh, in the whole first half of the 20th century, right? Until the Algerian uh, War of Independence, right? Uh, and, uh, okay, anyway, so I don't need to get on my stump too hard about that. So that's what I'm trying to write a history of, right? The sources uh, that I've used are uh, primarily thus far... Rift Mountains in Morocco, 1921 to 1927. Yes, I'll be using that as soon as your book comes out, no problem. Um, are uh, <coughs> uh, Arabic memoirs uh, by a select number of Palestinian... Diaries and memoirs by a select number uh, of Palestinians who wrote them, who are obviously mostly not from the classes that, that I'm most interested in here, but some of whom organized amongst youth, for instance, uh, and some of whom are, you know, self-identified or typically identified as middle class uh, and not upper class. Uh, but the probably the bulk of the sources, uh, and also there are several volumes of published uh, Arabic documents, uh, both during the revolt and uh, for the preceding period, uh, that I've uh, tried to make fairly extensive use of. Uh, but the major archival sources are the Israel State Archive uh, in Jerusalem, which holds uh, remnants of the British uh, mandate that, that the British were too in a hurry to bother to truck out of the country, uh, <clears throat> as well as, uh, well, that's mostly what I used at the Israel State Archive. Yeah, the Israel State Archive, and it also has the uh, what's euphemistically referred to as the abandoned documents section, which is uh, captured Palestinian documents, mostly again papers captured in 1948, uh, uh, left behind by people who obviously were not capable of carrying uh, those effects with them. Um, I also use the Central Zionist Archive, which has an intelligence kind of thing going really throughout the the mandate period, but it really thickens substantially from 1929 on. Haganah intelligence, I also use the Haganah archive, but the Haganah intelligence doesn't really start until 1936. Uh, the story is that strangely they were caught with their pants down, not really understanding that the tinderbox was set to light after Izzedine al-Qassam uh, went into the hills in November 1935 and tried to uh, raise an insurrection. Um, but they very quickly, uh, you know, formed an intelligence network uh, using lots of people that I think they were already in contact with, right? Mostly through the oldest Zionist intelligence network, as far as I understand it, and I'm not a specialist in this subject, uh, 
was created around the need to actually understand the conditions around any given plot of land that the Zionists wanted to buy, right? So they would cultivate different local links to try and find out, well, where, where are the weak points in this area or who has the good land that they're not using or who has the good land that we can offer a nice, uh, a pretty penny to, um, et cetera. Uh, and, but, but really it's the, it's the series of crises from 1929 forward that, that, that produce a substantial thickening of Zionist intelligence, which is a, a major source uh, for my dissertation uh, and is cited only extremely sparely here. Um, and the final source uh, is uh, the colonial archive here, right, which is predominantly the, what used to be called the public record office, right, the National Archive. Uh, and the Middle East Center Archive at St. Anthony's at Oxford um, has some very useful collections, including by uh, one counterinsurgency specialist uh, who, again, migrated from India to come and work in uh, Palestine when he was seconded there. Uh, okay, so to take the more specific questions here, um, is it Carla? Uh, okay. Wonderfully specific questions. Um, about unemployment and the Haycraft Commission, um, I'm going to confess to you I have not read the Haycraft Commission report cover to cover. No, no, but I, I, I'm now going back and kind of systematically reading all of these things that I can get my hands on. Um, uh, uh, what I would say is that I think, aside from whatever kind of evaluation of ex-soldiers and people returning to the land, uh, and the pressure this created on the employment situation, I think it has something more to do uh, with what Michael mentioned earlier, this sort of declensionist narrative, if we want to use that language. And in the sense that kind of, um, you know, raggedy-looking peasants were seen as epiphenomenal, right? The, the British encounter this everywhere across the globe, wherever they go. It's something normal to them, right? The peasants are, they're backwards and tribal and foolish and illogical and all of these, you know, uh, conceits that we know to be untrue, of course, right? Uh, but are part of this sort of colonial imaginary, right? Um, or maybe part of this liberal uh, uh, despotic imaginary uh, to maybe put a finer pen on it, a point on it, I'm not sure. Um, all of which is to say that uh, I think they largely, despite the fact that unemployment emerges as an issue in both the Haycraft Commission report and the Palin Commission report that preceded it, uh, that was written in response to the Nebi Musa riots in 1920, um, again, uh, you know, you get specialists or you get observers like Haycraft who say, look, this is a problem, and then the state does nothing about it, right? And I think they do nothing about it essentially because they think early on they think, well, once we juice up the Jewish national home, that'll take care of the problem, right? The benefits will trickle down to the peasants and everyone else, right? I Is cover it all in my book. Okay, <laughs> all right. Um, and vis-a-vis -vis Hope Simpson, um, I think we're stuck in much the same quandary, right? Uh, Hope Simpson makes a, a number of recommendations, right? Again, he pushes on this point of unemployment specifically, and he says unemployment is acute in a number of areas, like Nablus Town, right? Which had also suffered a depopulation crisis because there wasn't enough work there, so people were clearly migrating to find a means of sustenance for themselves. Uh, and as far as I can tell, nothing is essentially... Uh, done in response to this, right? You have, a, you have Hope Simpson, you have the Shaw Commission report, 
you have the French reports, you have a set of reports that, that are a chain reaction that follow 1929 that say major revisions of policy are necessary if we're not to create a, you know, a, 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 a larger explosion than 1929, and this gets countermanded. Uh, in large part, I think, uh, or I should say, uh, uh, in significant measure by the high commissioner who comes into office from 1932 to 1938, which is uh, Wacope, Arthur Wacope. And Wacope is very much uh, when, uh, well, first of all, he and the colonial office are really excited when the deluge of uh, Jewish immigrants blows up from 1933 forward with the rise of Nazism in Europe because this means that customs revenues go through the roof. And it's customs that have become the primary category of, uh, of funding the local exchequer. And in fact, they're sitting on millions and millions of pounds right before the revolt that they've been withholding, that they haven't found any kind of good enough reason right, to, to actually spend. This is noted in the, if you want to look this up later, it's noted in the, uh, the annual report for 1936, I think, right? They had something like five million pounds. They, they had the budgetary expenses of at least a year and a half of running the entire enterprise just sitting in the vault, right? And, and when they could have been doing something to defray the conditions that they had, uh, you know, helped to, uh, to uh, push to such a brink. Well, that was the central government's fault. It was Westminster that you're not allowed to spend that money. Probably, right? I mean, this is, I mean, the Treasury tends to put its foot down and say, no, no, you can't spend that money on those groveling, sniveling people, right? Um, so uh, I haven't followed the correspondence uh, from the Treasury about the surplus throughout the early 1930s closely enough to, um, to doubt what you're saying. Uh, but it certainly seemed to be something that, you know, flies over their heads and how it could at this point. It, 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 it's uh, somewhat baffling, I think. Okay. Why were the elites not able to capitalize on the descent? I can't remember who asked that question, uh, but why are they not able to capitalize on this growing current uh, of dissent? And I, I think it's in part that, uh, as I tried to suggest here, that in terms of social relations, the elites occupy a contradictory position to the peasantry, right? They've been exploiting the peasantry, uh, you know, through usury and rent and other means, but particularly through usury, for several generations at this point, right? If we read Bashar Dumani's famous study, Rediscovering Palestine, we know that usury becomes a major device in uh, organizing the accumulation and production from the Jebel Nablus region that he studies uh, uh, in the 19th century. Um, <clears throat> and as I try to show here, uh, even amongst, as I try to show in the dissertation, I'll say, uh, even amongst the youth, who increasingly come to be not just upper class or middle class youth, but youth that often are unemployed or are noted as former agriculturalists or something like this in the records, in the surviving records of the youth organizations that I've looked at. Um, even they do not call for some kind of change in terms of social policy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, the indebtedness of the peasantry, right? Namely, even they are not looking to the, you know, society's nominal leadership and saying, hey, if you, know, if you keep charging 50% interest over three months, you, know, you aren't going to have anyone to charge interest to very soon, right? It's only going to go on like this for a couple more years, and then the lands will 
you know, devolve into your hands, and what will you do? Will you sell them? Will you take sharecroppers, etc., right? Um, but nobody, from what I can gather, is really having that conversation. Instead, they're focused on the notion that the state needs to prohibit land transfers um, you know, itself. It needs to mobilize the police and, and, its kind of, and the courts and everything else to stop land transfers from Arabs to Jews, which, of course, the state is completely unwilling uh, to do at this point, whether it would have been able to or not. So there's a total kind of failure of their moralizing discourse, right? They go out into the villages and they say, don't sell your land, don't sell your land. You know, it's a national travesty. A person without land is a person without honor, this kind of thing, right? But the problem is you, you've seen the catalog of things on the peasants' backs. They don't have any choice, right? So there's a kind of internal failure of the nationalist movement to reconcile with the social contradictions that underlie that movement, right? That that actually predate the period that we're talking about here, right? But that 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 rapidly, you know, crystallize into um, something much more valuable under the mandate. Um, and there's a. I think we should probably, you know, not be. We would be remiss if we didn't note the fact that these elites, right, who are the nominal leaders of the national movement even in the 1930s, they hold themselves completely aloof from the people that I'm talking about in this paper, right? And that who, whose lives I try to get into uh, in the dissertation, right? They very much look down on them. And there's a, there's a class disdain that is, that is very, very sharp and very pungent there, which uh, some of my colleagues have looked into in other ways. Um, Munir Fakhreddin, for instance, who also came out of the same program as I did at NYU, has written a rather interesting study of land, and uh, he argues that uh, you know even amongst the sort of new nationalist middle class in the uh, you know around the time of uh, the 1908 revolution and thereafter was very much kind of committed to liberal notions of property, uh, and, and again very much not questioning notions of debt and very much uh, holding itself above uh, the mass of society. Okay. Is it Janan? Um, to your question about uh, displacement outside of Palestine before 1948, very interesting question. I don't know the answer in uh, in the period that I uh, that su succeeds the end of the revolt, 1939. Um, but what I suspect is that the actual the largest displacement before 1948 actually comes with the promulgation of the citizenship law in the middle of the 1920s. And the citizenship law is written in this way that, again, makes declared state policy painfully obvious, right? Because if you're a Jew, you can show up and claim citizenship. But if uh, you're a Palestinian and you're uh, an expatriate, uh, you're only given a year to put in a claim to citizenship. So if you live in El Salvador or Brazil or wherever, right, somewhere in the, the diaspora, uh, you have very little time, actually, to put in the claim and actually uh, 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 maintain your uh, original Dibesni in, in Palestine. Uh, so, and I don't know how many thousands of people that is, but I suspect it's several, at least several thousand people living in that diaspora who would, uh, because the British consulates in those countries didn't do a good job uh, it probably intentionally, I would assume, at least, to a certain degree, but maybe it's just good old colonial neglect. Because they didn't circulate the notice that said, you know, here forward, you've got 12 months. If you don't send in the proper paperwork and all the rest of it, 
you know, kiss it goodbye, you can never go back there, except with, you know, I don't know. Um, so I don't know about that. There, there seem to be a crop of young scholars looking at Palestinians in Latin America, and I would suspect that maybe um, you might be able to find some numbers there. But in terms of, you know, displacement from actual villages outside of Palestine, I, I, I know basically nil about this. Um, and I suspect that there is not a whole lot of it, although probably people in the Galilee sometimes did migrate into, you know, what became Lebanon, right, to labor in southern Lebanon. Um, and they probably, you know, crossed the border relatively frequently. I wouldn't actually know there, but that's just to hazard a guess. Our gentleman has left who made the wonderful comment about the Supreme Muslim Council and the pushing of religion as a tactic, um, which now sounds immensely contradictory from the post-9-11 standpoint of things at a certain level. Um, I'll just leave that one hanging in the air, but I would say that, uh, yeah, there's a very much, uh, in terms of strategies of rule, the British were very much, they were into instrumentalizing a, anything they could get their hands on, right, as far as I can ascertain. And they did have a particularly uh, Orientalist imagination of what being Muslim meant, right? And this notion that, uh, which Weldon Matthews, for instance, has pushed uh, significantly in his book on the 1930s and Istiqlal Party, that the British, it, he argues, and I think I echo him here, uh, that uh, the British intentionally tried to cultivate a kind of sectarianism as a quietist strategy, right? Uh, and he's not the only one to say that. Rashid Khalidi and other people uh, have also said that. Which I think is, is a counterpoint to, this, to the kind of mufti centrism, if you will, of the historiography of this period, right? Where people tend to find a need to write the history, well, for far too long, the history of the Palestinian national movement has been written as the biography of the mufti. Right? And it's as if the Mufti, you know, just, you know, he's the grand conductor and, you know, the Palestinian minions move at his beck and call. So I think that, you know, Matthews and Khalidi are very right in uh, trying to suggest that, and, and uh, Philip Mathur and others are very right in trying to suggest that this is actually not his uh, trajectory, uh, frankly, uh, at all. Okay, I'll stop there. That's okay. Oh, wait, 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 wait. There was a question, sorry, about collective punishment, which I should also say. Yes, I'm so sorry to have elided that one. Um, so, from what I gather from your question, you're referring to the actual period of the revolt in yeah. terms of torture and everything. Uh, yeah, there are there are letters uh, in the published in one of the published volumes, uh, Subhi al Khadra, uh, who was a member of the Arab executive and uh, was a lawyer. Uh, by profession and a youth organizer, uh, and I think part of the Istiqlal party, if I recall correctly, which was sort of the most radical uh, of the political parties at the time in the early 1930s, uh, he gets interned very early on in the revolt, and he writes this lengthy letter at one point, I can't remember to who, but to somebody uh, who, uh, I can't remember who the recipient is, but in, in any case, uh, it's in the Lebanese it's in one of the Palestinian archives, or was in one of the Palestinian archives in Lebanon, uh, that catalogs a whole set of tortures, and there's one paragraph that just goes on, and, uh, you know, and it's the most disgusting kind of torture you can imagine, like all kinds of things that you can imagine doing to somebody's private parts, 
they tried and did, you know, lighting them on fire, doing all kinds of other things. Um, and uh, Edward Keith Roach, who's a uh, district commissioner during the revolt and the period preceding it, uh, he writes in his memoirs that the torture was real and he takes credit for shutting some of it down, right? So he claims that he closed one of the torture centers. Yeah, exactly. Um, I found some smattering of mentions of torture in the other memoirs uh, that I've looked at predominantly. And this is, uh, uh, again, not something that the war office or anyone else wants to cop to, right, for very obvious reasons they make. And in fact, the war office, when they get pressed on, so at the end of 1938, right, uh, the trajectory of the revolt, right, so just in case people don't know, right? So the first phase of the revolt is the general strike in 1936, last six months. Uh, it ends uh, with the British basically rolling out um, a royal commission, which is the Peel Commission report to look into the, which, uh, the events in 36, which recommends for the first time the partition of Palestine, right, in the middle of 1937, and that basically sets off the second phase of the revolt, right? Uh, there, uh, as soon as the the report is published, there's all kinds of furor, and then the Qasamiyun, the followers of Ezzedin al-Qasam, succeed in assassinating an assistant district commissioner uh, in the north who was uh, very partial to the Zionists, um, and that really gets the revolt going again from the uh, early, or sorry, late 1937. And from late 1937 to essentially about the same point in 1938, September, October, the revolt grows into, you know, it's kind of in one long kind of growth spurt, right? Until it, it, it's, it's basically expelled British forces from large areas of the country. It basically claims suzerainty over large areas of the country. It's erected an administrative and a courts apparatus to govern the population, which I try to uh, kind of uh, get into and explain uh, more in the dissertation. But from after the Munich Agreement, Right with Hitler, uh, the sec there's a second division of troops is freed up to be deployed into Palestine, and that kind of supercharges the counterinsurgency. So all the work that the torture wasn't actually, you know, coming to unwind the rebels before then, uh, a set of tactics that again uh, I get into in the uh, dissertation in more depth. But what I call carceral searches, which is where the British would not just uh, surround a village. Uh, and then send their men inside to look uh, for rebels or caches of weapons, but they would actually uh, surround a village and then empty its population temporarily uh, and either make them file in front of informants, uh, looking for people who would have useful information for them, informants that would be in concealed uh, tanks or other kinds of vehicles, uh, or they actually put them in external cages Right? And they would leave them in these cages with no food, no water, no shelter for days sometimes. Right? And ve very late in the revolt, uh, uh, over 10 people died in one of these operations. Um, and it's my contention in the dissertation, and I'm back in the archive looking for more documentation to firm this up, that it's this strategy uh, that helps produce informants that allow the British to penetrate the rebel infrastructure by the end of 1938 such that the rebel bands are on their heels. They're getting, because no longer do they have the element of surprise, which they always had on the battlefield before that, and they could just melt away, and the British would, had immense amounts of trouble ascertaining who's who, right? Um, so obviously, 
at the point that you are kind of emptying whole villages, right, and treating everyone therein as a suspect and leaving them potentially for days, you know, or potentially to die of, uh, you know, starvation, etc., or exposure to the elements, right, then you've got a kind of collective punishments regime on steroids, right? Um, but I would argue, and I don't have enough of the documentation here, but I'm trying to suggest it in the paper, right, that this is an older genealogy, right? And Lale Khalili in her book would say this is a, this is a you know, translocal genealogy. This is a set of tactics and techniques that have been refined in the Northwest Frontier province and in other places or against the Boers that are then migrated in and adjusted and recalibrated, uh, right, for fighting um, the Palestinians. Um, okay, so I should stop there. Thanks, but we do have one more question, perhaps. So, if we oh my lord, tax you you one more You've actually hit the subject I, I wanted to ask about uh, uh, about the, <coughs> the revolt and the villages. Um, we, we're doing a project, which is, a, if you like, a political project to to uh, get uh, the British government to acknowledge uh, what it did to the Palestinians, mm. uh, culminating in the ethnic cleansing. And uh, and his silence about it since, uh, which is as big a crime in many ways, because it's condemned the Palestinians to to all the rest. <coughs> um, some of the things that uh, we we try to show the basic uh, what Britain did that actually led to the the the, the, the cleansing, <coughs> and one was the Peel Commission that partition, but it also. It didn't just partition, but it also said uh, it also advocated ethnic cleansing because it said you know, in the Jewish state <laughs> the Palestinians would have to be pushed out right. because there wouldn't be a Jewish majority. That right. was in the Peel Commission. So, uh, so the other thing about it is we we say that uh, <coughs> it was the Peel Commission, and I hope you're you're confirming this. It was the Peel Commission that triggered the revolt. Uh, the peasant revolt, uh, and hopefully you were right there. <laughs> uh, and um, the other thing that uh, there were issues about it, it was hard to get a lot of information on on, on the Palestinian revolt and on about uh, the actualities of it. You know, mm. like you were talking mm -hmm. about the torture and the setting up of the people with hoods and all that. Business. Now, New Singer says that the rat was asked to bomb. Uh, villages that were out of order, that what they called out of order. So I've never seen that anywhere else, though. And I was wondering if, um, how much more information have you got that isn't in really <coughs> already there about the Palestinian revolt? Because even some Palestinians didn't seem to, I think that the Palestinians from the cities didn't seem to have the same experience of the revolt as they did in the country. Wonderful questions. I'd be very interested to hear about your campaign later. Um, it sounds rather interesting, uh, and I would say uh, appropriate. Um, the Peel Commission absolutely sets off the second phase of the revolt. Um, I don't see any point in getting into counterfactuals to try and debate if the Peel Commission hadn't recommended what it recommended. Would the tinderbox have reignited? But clearly, all the conditions were still there that essentially appertained in 1936. Uh, and the Peel Commission becomes the trigger uh, for uh, the radicals to basically get the ball rolling again. 
uh, and the revolt blows up in 1938 to a scale that it didn't even attain in 1936. And at first, the British are telling themselves in late 1937, oh, it, it, it hasn't hit the, the pitch of 1936 yet. You know, maybe we can wrap this up, right? And, and they're kind of constantly sort of deluding themselves that, that this thing isn't going to keep snowballing, uh, uh, but it does. Um, <clears throat> and it's only, frankly, I think, I mean, utter and sheer brutality that suppresses the revolt. And there, there are a number of good uh, pieces about this already. Kirk um, Norris has an essay in the Journal of Imperial and Commonwealth History from a few years ago uh, that, that uh, looks into this subject. Uh, there's another researcher named Matthew Hughes. Uh, I can't remember where he's at. He's somewhere over here who's written a whole series of essays about the counterinsurgency. I think his arguments I would take issue with, but the evidence that he musters, because he, he basically says the British were only casual racists, or he comes up with some kind of sophistry, like what I think is a sophistry, you know, to kind of dismiss the degree of the brutality that he catalogs. And indeed, one of his essays is called The Banality of Brutality, right? As if, you know, somehow that meant that you well, anyway, we don't need to entertain that uh, too seriously, I don't think. Um, my dissertation does try to get into some of, uh, again, to contribute to the literature on the counterinsurgency and the, its costs um, to the Palestinians, uh, particularly, uh, and I'm happy to give it to you if, if you want to have a look at it, um, particularly... Uh, although I wouldn't recommend to anyone to read the whole thing, geez Louise. Um, but the, the last chapter uh, is about, is, uh, well, the counterinsurgency features in all of the chapters on the revolt, but, uh, but really I think the pieces that you'd probably be most interested in are in chapter 10, the last chapter. Um, and you could you know, skim for what you're interested in and could find there. But, but in part, uh, what I've found about those atrocities is largely kind of to a certain degree additive, and to a certain degree I'm just trying to collate what other people have found. Uh, but the, the suggestion I made earlier about what I call the carceral searches, these, the, the strategy of emptying the villages temporarily, um, <clears throat> uh, that I think is something that other people haven't really talked about so much. Um, and I, again, I suspect that this is actually really the key to unwinding uh, the revolt because it's, it's through such techniques that they accumulated the informants that they needed to accumulate, that they had previously had a really uh, grave difficulty in accumulating. I want to go back for just one second to, um, to hold your attention for just one more minute to this question of defending the policies. I think maybe you said something to me about that or, or I failed to fully... Um, get out a thought that I wanted to get out earlier, which is that whenever uh, house demolitions, for instance, again, pioneered by the British, now used regularly by Israel, um, a whole, like a whole panoply of techniques, right, pioneered by the British, now used by Israel, um, <clears throat> house demolitions or uh, aerial bombardments, which they actually were really reluctant to give the, the go-ahead to actually bomb villages, like the French had done in Syria, willy-nilly. Um, the British seem to consider themselves above such a strategy, right? It's, it's a little too blatant. Um, but they loosened those regulations and said, well, if you're catching them in the fields or you're catching them wherever, go ahead, bomb away, right? 
Uh, and indeed, many of the battles throughout 1938, the Palestinians are getting cut to ribbons by air power, right? And so they, develop, they have to develop a set of strategies to hide uh, from uh, what are called air pins in particular, which is when planes would help a search operation of a village on the ground. Um, <clears throat> but the point is that whenever uh, there was pushback um, on these tactics, and this pushback really uh, gathered force from the Foreign Office in the last quarter of 1938, they said, look, we're going to have a set of roundtable discussions with Arabs and Jews here in London, and we're going to try and, you know, finally cut the Gordian knot, you know. Uh, this is the St. James Place conference that takes place in 1939 that leads to the 1939 White Paper. But in the lead-up, the Foreign Office is saying, you know, can't you tamp things down a little bit? This is looking pretty bad for us. Uh, and the War Office and the High Commissioner at the time, Wachope has been removed because he's seen as too plastic and conciliatory to the Palestinians when he was neither. Um, but he's replaced with a kind of yes-man, uh, McMichael, I believe is his name. Uh, and between the High Commissioner and the War Office, they say, if we can't use home demolitions, then we can't defeat the Palestinians. Right? Or, if, or whatever strategy or whatever tactic is being pressed upon them, and they're saying, well, can't you just scale this down? They say, if we don't use this, we can't win. Right? And there's a very ardent defense of, the, of almost a, you know, a, a, a scorched earth kind of a policy. What a depressing note to end on. Well, uh, there's, a, there's a more optimistic note to end on, which is that we've learned a lot. And uh, I mean, one thing that Charles is doing that is often not done in a scholarship that's often sometimes obsessed with sort of reading colonial discourse as if it's a world unto itself without trying to... What he's doing is reading against the grain in the sense that Guha spoke about where you try to try to puzzle out what's happening on the ground by using colonial documents. But it's very important, and uh, it was very important to early subaltern studies, but it, it got lost, so I'm happy to see it, it here. And also, you know, we, of course, we have all these debates and social movements, contentious politics, but this is a showcase for the strengths of a historical approach where, you know, he's not trying to push down our throats some universal theory of... Uh, you know, whether to do with political opportunity or resource mobilization or whatever else it is. Uh, and we learn a lot through this kind of historical approach and also through the emphasis on structural pressures, which, you know, we can get lost in approaches that are so obsessed with thinking in terms of agency. So thank you very much, Charles, and we appreciate you coming. Thank you for coming.